0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Terry, stand up, please. So people will know this is my wife, Terry. And uh, one of the joys that we have when we're back here, John... Crum, could you bring me some water Um, ah, there's some don't worry okay one of the joys of coming back here is to see the things that change uh, and the things that remain the same Um, uh, Andrew Moore he changes each time we come back he's taller I wonder when it can stop His dad is nodding his head because he still has to buy him trousers. And uh, so he's wondering also when it will stop. But it's also nice to see uh, things that don't change. Um, My daughter Sarah is still here and she's still beautiful and she's still short. Um, That doesn't change. And Joni is still wearing a coat that only Joni would wear. And... uh, David Pryor is over here and he still has the same footwork of uh, while he plays the guitar. (laughs) It's nice to see that and that doesn't change. And uh, and Chris, Chris, Connell, insularity? I've never heard anybody pray and use the word insularity. So Chris is still... (laughs) using words that I don't know what they mean. I have to say, what does that mean? Our sermon today is part of a series that I think it was Jake who came up with the title and the, the concept and the idea, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. And it's a really good title. It's a really good series. Uh, I think a lot about friendship when I come back here. And there are so many aspects of what it means for Jesus to be a friend. And a friend of sinners, a friend of mine. Uh, And I think some of them, some of the series that have talked about various things have focused on promises, but um, the aspect of friendship that I want us to think about today is one of the great gifts of friendship when a friend has your back and when a friend fights for you and fights your enemies and it's a great encouragement um, one of the beautiful things that I don't know if some of you see but uh, Pastor Tim has a blog and sometimes he gets attacked on the blog or sometimes other people get attacked and it's very encouraging to see other people other friends come and uh, and come against those who are attacking the person who's written the post as we come to the time of Advent we focus on promises and if I'm remembering correctly uh, a couple weeks ago Tim spoke about that a virgin would conceive a promise in the book of isaiah and then he talked about comfort oh comfort my people another promise from the book of isaiah well if there's a promise that kind of encapsulates what i'm going to talk about today it'd be the first promise of a messiah in the scriptures in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 where God is cursing Satan and he says that one day the seed of the woman will come and will crush your head. When pastors and worship leaders think about Christmas they oftentimes picture what we all know from Luke chapter 1 and 2 and Matthew chapter 1 and there are images of warmth and uh, devotion um, consecration godliness uh, family things like that yeah that's all there but I'm going to talk about a little bit different aspect Of the time of Advent as we look to the birth of Christ to the incarnation and I want to talk about deception and rage and terror and murder and bondage and being struck dumb and accusations of infidelity that's more like Christmas for us My text this morning comes from one of the epistles, the, letter, the first letter of John, the third chapter, and I'd like you to turn there. I'm going to focus on just a portion of one of the verses in 1 John chapter 3, but I'm going to read, I believe, the first 11 verses. This is God's word. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God and such we are for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him beloved now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who was born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. The word of the Lord. Now perhaps you can guess that I'm going to focus on just a portion of verse 8, where it says, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And the question I want to ask today is, how did he do that? And obviously, I'm going to give nothing close to a complete answer, but I'm going to try and talk about the main ways that Jesus has and is destroying the works of the devil. The first thing I want to point us to, and I'm going to try and stay mainly in Matthew's Gospel, So if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 4, the first way in which he did that was by defeating Christ in the wilderness. Did I say that? I said that wrong, didn't I? By defeating Satan in the wilderness. In the second century, there was an early church father named Irenaeus. And he came up with a theory that we today called recapitulation. See, Chris, I do it too. It's a fancy word that really means that Jesus undid what Adam did. Jesus undid what Adam did. What Adam broke, Jesus heals. And there's also a sense in which where Israel had failed Jesus obeyed his father now it's important to set the context of Matthew chapter 4 it comes right after the baptism of Christ where he goes down into the River Jordan and kneels down and is baptized by John and the Holy Spirit descends upon him and it's not like Jesus did not have The Holy Spirit before that that'd be impossible but it does signify that the Holy Spirit came upon our Lord in a new way and then that voice rang out from the heavens this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased and this is the beginning of the ministry of our Lord and immediately the Spirit impels him pushes him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he begins that time by fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And verse 2 has that very confusing statement. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Now, I've never fasted anywhere close to that length of time, but what I am told is those are those who go through long fasts tell us that uh, the first couple days are hard and then you get somewhere around day five or six a pretty terrible headache Um, and that lasts for a couple of days and then somewhere around day 10 or 12 the headache goes away and you feel better than you've ever felt before and you feel like you could go on fasting indefinitely and then There comes a point in time, oftentimes around day 40, when your fat reserves are used up. And then you become very hungry. More hungry than you have been up to that point. So the timing of the attack, right after his baptism, right after his father, has set him aside and said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased right when he was at a point of physical weakness the tempter comes to him and tempts him and the devil attacked him as the Son of God as the Messiah and is challenging him how are you going to live out your ministry how are you going to accomplish your mission as the Messiah And each time, as I hope each one of you has been taught in Sunday school, each time Jesus quotes from Scripture, and he's making it clear that I am going to follow the path that has been marked out for me in the Scriptures. I am going to proceed with my Messianic mission according to Scripture. And so each time Jesus says to the tempter, it is written, it is written, it is written. And let me just say in parenthesis, that we're a couple days from the new year and if you're not a regular Bible reader please become one and read the scriptures over and over and over and let me speak particularly to the young men here do that read the scriptures once a year and by the time I'm speaking to you now as a 20 year old by the time you're 40 40 you'll have read the scriptures through 20 times. And by the time you're 60, you will have read the scriptures through 40 times. And you'll start to become ready to lead the church and to be a source of wisdom for the younger ones. Now in the first temptation, Satan told Jesus, in the midst of his hunger, to turn the stones into bread. And our Lord refused to do that. Israel, when it was in the wilderness, complained against the Lord with regard to his physical provision. They complained of God's provision. And Jesus refused to complain, trusted in God to provide for his hunger, and he refused to place his own comfort before the Lord. And he gave himself to obedience to the word of God. And this, in the second temptation Satan takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple and tells him to throw himself down from the top and to rely on God to catch him The devil even quotes scripture to back up his case but our Lord will have none of it Satan has applied the scriptures incorrectly to follow the devil would be to manipulate God to force him to do a miracle Now, as Max said, we normally live in the country of Zambia. And one of the things that is a scourge of the African church are various attempts to manipulate God. Um, Just as in African traditional religion, there are many attempts to learn how to manipulate the spirit world. Today, there are uh, attempts to learn the techniques to how we can manipulate God and God will not be manipulated and Jesus says no this is wrong we must not put God to the test in an unnecessary way the third temptation Satan is very blatant and tells Jesus to worship him and then he makes a promise he says if you do I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory Israel failed that test in the wilderness Israel gave into idolatry when Moses was up on Mount Sinai they had Aaron make a golden calf and gave in to idolatry so Israel failed Jesus does not God alone must be worshiped and just like all the devil's promises they're false Satan never had the power and authority to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. So Jesus refused to turn away from the plan that God had mapped out for him in his word. And so he commands Satan to leave. Now, the best way that I can summarize that is what Jesus was doing in this chapter in Matthew's gospel is he was subduing the strong man subduing the strong man and then for the rest of his ministry he was plundering the possessions of the strong man that brings me on to the second point how did Jesus destroy the works of the devil by defeating him in the wilderness secondly by casting out demons Turn to Matthew chapter 12, and beginning at verse 22, a man who was possessed by a demon and who was also blind and dumb was brought to Jesus, and Jesus cast him out, cast the demon out of the man, and then the Pharisees made a terrible accusation. They said that Jesus cast out demons because he was actually in league with the devil himself. I can't go into that, but our Lord dispenses completely with that notion, but presents Satan as the head of a kingdom. And so when you read the Gospels, what I want you to think of is that it's not just simply something done to that particular demon to help that particular man or woman. It is a defeat for the whole of Satan's kingdom. Jesus having defeated Satan in the wilderness is now plundering the possessions of the strong man and each one each demon possessed man or woman from whom Jesus casts out the demon is an advance of God's kingdom and a further defeat of the strong man. Now, I could go into details about the way Jesus cast out demons It was what I would call simple and dignified. He simply told the demon to be quiet and then commanded him to leave. That was quite a contrast from the way that exorcisms were done in the ancient world. There were all kinds of elaborate verbal formulas and incantations. On the continent of Africa today, people sometimes feel they need to shout and sometimes they smoke out the demon Sometimes they claim that speaking in tongues is very effective. Oftentimes there's an emphasis on getting the exact words right. I was at one exorcism where literally the man was holding a book and reading out of the book the various formula that he was supposed to read. It's a contrast with the way Jesus did it. He advances step by step the kingdom of God and destroys the works of the devil. Now I need to come finally to the third point, the most important point. The way that Jesus destroyed the works of the devil is through the cross, on the cross, by means of the cross. Now, if there's been one topic that I've spent the last I don't know five or ten years reading on and researching it has been what we call the doctrine of the atonement and it's a wonderful beautiful doctrine its intricate its interesting its fascinating its basic to the whole of the Christian life but the atonement has can be viewed from a number of different ways central to the atonement is what uh, we've prayed about already and Jody has already sung about and led us in singing. And that is the atonement had a Godward focus in that Jesus propitiated the wrath of his Father, which was justly directed against each one of us because of our sins. So the atonement was made to God to propitiate his anger. And to turn it away. And the atonement in its, its uh, manward direction. Is what we call the double exchange. Whereas our sins. Are considered to have been imputed to Christ on the cross. And covered. And his righteousness is granted to us. So that we might be accepted. By God. But it's also pretty clear that the atonement has a direction towards Satan hasn't always been popular it was very common in the early church and even though the early church talked about it quite a bit it had a number of mistaken notions it was somewhat resurrected by Martin Luther and it's talked about in many developing world countries today and that is the way of viewing the cross as the final defeat of Satan I want you to think back to the beginning of Matthew's Gospel after Jesus was born the wise men came to worship him what was the reaction well it became known to by Herod that they had come to worship a king kings don't like rival kings and so that greatly troubled Herod and so he tried to deceive the Magi and say hey when you're done worshiping him come back and tell me where he is so I can also go to worship him it's plain and simple deception and let me just ask you a question who's behind that deception obviously it's the enemy now let me be clear in the first service I said this right at the beginning but let me just say it now I'm going to say a number of things about Satan and you might be able to take some of what I say and draw the conclusion that you and I aren't really responsible for our sins completely false each one of us is totally responsible for our sin even if we were led into sin by a friend or the enemy So don't make the mistake of trying to get out from the responsibility of your sin just because certain things are true. And so this is one of those occasions where you have to hold two things together, both of which Scripture teaches, and we don't completely see how they mesh together. But Satan was indeed behind the deception of Herod and then God warned the Magi in a dream and so they went back to their own country without going back to Herod and when Herod found out about that he was absolutely enraged and he went on a a a murderous spree and had all the male children in the area around Bethlehem killed Now, who's behind that murder who's behind those murders probably weren't that many male children around there 20, 30, who's behind that? Obviously, it is the devil. And so, as we read the scriptures again and again and again, we're tipped off that right from the beginning of the gospel, there is an opposition of the devil to Jesus. And the devil is going to try and do everything he can to keep from fulfilling his mission. But let me ask you, the devil's not omniscient, is he? He's not. There's only one omniscient being, and that is God. Did the devil know what the mission of Christ was? It did not enter into his imagination that Jesus came to die, to be crucified, to go to the cross. The devil did not know that. So what did the devil do? He set his mind to kill our Lord. After all, he was a murderer from the beginning. And so the gospel accounts can be seen as a kind of deadly chess game with the devil arousing opposition to our Lord and to try to kill him. And Jesus, going to the cross... But what does it say time and time again in John's Gospel? His time had not yet come. So the devil aroused opposition to our Lord and there were several occasions when the crowds would go after Jesus to harm him, perhaps to kill him. And Jesus always eludes it. He escapes. Now when I was a young kid, I always wondered, how did he do it? Was he fast? did he run fast could he dodge people how did he do it never had that question answered but Jesus is on his way to the cross and he will not get there until it's time no matter what Satan does the devil was also behind the plots made by the religious leaders to kill Jesus he put the idea of betrayal into the mind of Judas And then he actually entered into Judas Iscariot to perform the betrayal. And so the devil finally, toward the end, so worked things out or so thought he was working things out that he got Jesus to the cross to be killed. The devil meant that for unspeakable evil, but God meant it for good to save many lives. Satan thought he was outsmarting Jesus, yet he played exactly right into the hands of Christ. And that's one of the things that when you think about the works of the devil and the sovereignty of God, one of the things you have to remember is that Satan is God's devil. One of the reasons we have the book of Job, lots of reasons, but one of them is to teach us what goes on behind the scenes. And it's very clear that Satan is on a leash and the leash is held by God the Father. And time and time again, our Lord says to Satan, You may go thus far, but no farther. You may go thus far, but no farther. And so the sovereignty of God is over completely the activity. Of Satan, and so Satan thinks he's outsmarting Jesus in killing him and wiping him out, in 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 reversing the victory that Christ won in, in the wilderness. But he actually plays right into his hands. The cross is the reason for the incarnation. The manger and the cross are tied together. The Lord laid in a crib so he could hang on the cross. Christmas enables Good Friday and Easter the cross also sealed the doom of Satan. Now, I love A Mighty Fortress is Our God by Martin Luther. And I love the idea that the doom of Satan is sealed. Why? Why is his fate sealed? Well, Satan and his angels rebelled against the Most High. Our passage in 1 John says that he sinned from the beginning. But God is not concerned with angels, is he? He is concerned with the children of Abraham. And Jesus, our Lord, atoned for the sins of his people, the descendants of Abraham. He did not atone for the sins of Satan and his angels. And the fact that he did not atone for their sins indeed sealed the fate of Satan. His doom is sure. Hell has indeed been prepared for the devil and his angels. So the cross sealed the doom of Satan. There's no hope. Incidentally, that's the reason. That's uh, I'm looking out at some of you young parents and I've often told people that you have to be a very good theologian to be a mom or a dad uh, because of the question that your children will ask you and Lizzie I think it was you but I'm not sure Um, you were the one who said uh, we're supposed to love our enemies right dad yeah does that mean we're supposed to love Satan Well, this is the answer, Liz. No, because his doom is sealed. Also, the cross secured the salvation of a people no man can number. The salvation is not partial, but it's total. Body and soul, it goes from our calling to glory. And it is given only to those who are united to Jesus by faith alone. So how did Jesus destroy the works of the devil? By defeating him in the wilderness. By every demon he cast out. And he had a complete victory over him on the cross. But let's talk about it. Is Satan gone? Or have his works been destroyed completely? And the answer is yes and no. And the best way to illustrate this is to go back to World War II. And here, I know some of you don't know the details of World War II, but uh, you had two sides, the the allies on one side and the Axis powers on the other. And the Axis powers seemed to be winning and finally then there was a plan that was made where D-Day was planned, where the Allies were in boats across the uh, English Channel and went up on the beaches of Normandy. And on this D-Day, that's actually when World War II was won, when the Allies established that beachhead in France. Then it was over. Then it was a progressive, pushing back of the Germans. Now, don't make any mistakes. There were battles after D-Day, and there were battles that the Allies lost. But by that point in time, the end was no longer in doubt. Victory Day was still in the future, but Victory Day was no longer a question. Once D-Day was successful, well obviously the cross is D-Day, and Revelation 19 and 20, Is victory day so right now the war is not over but the end is not in doubt we have the assurance that Jesus will indeed return to defeat and judge his enemies and to bring his people to glory but you and I are living in the meantime we are living in the time between D-Day and victory day and I want to give you all a couple of exhortations right now about how you should live between the already and the not yet between D-Day and V-Day I know that some of you are still under the rule of Satan and to you I can only say to you and it's the most important thing I'll say run to Jesus Christ Flee from the rule of Satan and run to Christ. He is the only one that can set you free from your sins and from Satan's rule. You cannot do it yourself. Your accountability partner cannot do it. Accountability partners can help. The church can help, but only Jesus Christ can indeed set you free. Only Jesus Christ can transfer you from the rule of from being under the rule of Satan to being under the good rule of our Heavenly Father. So if that applies to you, run to Jesus Christ this morning. Secondly, each one of you is involved in this holy war. Each one of you who's a believer is involved in this holy war. Figure out your place in the holy war and then do it. Chris, I don't know what your place is in the Holy War. But Chris needs to figure out what his place is in the Holy War. Archie, what's his place in the Holy War? He needs to figure it out and do it. I also want you, as a result of this, to pray because I want, I hope that you'll leave here Realizing that the devil is far beyond any of your ability to stand against him alone. The scriptures teach us that when the word is proclaimed, the devil comes to some people and steals the word away so that it does not take root and bear fruit. So before, while some are even listening to the word, the devil takes it right away. Probably happening right now. I'd ask you to pray against this in your prayers. Pray that as the gospel is proclaimed week by week here, that the devil would be frustrated. He has blinded the eyes of many. And again, I'm aware that he has blinded the eyes of some of you here. Pray for their release. Young men and women, every time Terry and I come back here, I don't know about Terry, but I've just been thinking the last couple of days, access to temptations are easier today than they've ever been. And young people are dropping like flies. And don't think it's just in America. There's been a wake-up call in some of the very fine Reformed Baptist churches in Zambia that they're losing many of their young people to the same temptations that are being lost here pray for young people pray for young men and women and then I want you to to urge you to fight manfully against sin Men and women be done with pride be done with thinking who's superior and who's inferior today I will need Archie's help to fight manfully against sin and tomorrow he will need my help forget pride fight manfully against sin and each one of us needs the body of Christ to fight manfully against sin so use it use it and today you're in need of it tomorrow you will give the help To be done with all this junk about superiority and inferiority. And finally, I want you to show evident concern for those you have set aside to do the work on the front lines. I'd like all the pastors and elders and deacons to stand up right now. These are the men that you have set aside to work on the front lines in this community, show evident concern for them. You can sit down, guys. You've set them aside for this, and just as I've been back, I was, I was uh, in the car yesterday going out to your place. Uh, wait, no, wait, where'd you go? Where did Lawrence go? Anyway, um, going out to Lawrence's place to pick up a vehicle, and Tim was telling me a few things. And at the end, he just kind of looked at me and says, how does that make you feel? And I said, I feel terrible. I feel depressed. That is the reality of ministry. That your pastors and elders and and deacons, when they look at the situations they have to face, they are depressed. Pray for them, men and women, and show concern for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for each one here. Many different circumstances, O God. Some are right now blinded and under the rule of Satan, and some of them know that. I pray, O God, that they will run to your Son. And I pray, O God, that you would release them from this bondage and that you would put them and make them bondservants of you. For you are a good master, and you keep your promises. And Heavenly Father, I pray for the young people in our midst here, O God, that these young men and women would be strong, and that the word of God would dwell in them, and that they would overcome the enemy in all the ways that he is trying to attack them. Please, O God, be merciful to them, Help us who are a little bit older to pray diligently for them. And, O oh God, I pray for the men you have set aside in this church as pastors, elders, and deacons, that you would be kind and gracious to them. And I pray for them, O oh God, that they would not become weary in the tasks that they are doing, but that you would allow them to see the fruit of their labor and that you would allow them to see that your kingdom advance and that you would help them and encourage them as they plunder the possessions of the strong men. And we look forward, O God, to the day when finally Satan will be completely crushed by your son under his feet. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.